0: Morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday service. My name is Peter. This is Marga. It's our pleasure to give service for you here today. I'd like to especially welcome all those who are with us as guests, uh, the new bonds from last night who went through Kriya initiation. We have a women's creativity group. We have personal retreat. And there's another one, too. Anyway, welcome all of you. <laughs> I'm going to start with a reading from uh, Whispers from Eternity. This is a poem by Paramahansa Yogananda. My Devotion O thou mother of all conscious things, be thou consciously receptive to my prayers. Through thee I know all that I know, and thou knowest all I know, so thou knowest my prayers. And knowing and feeling thee constantly thus, I know that thou art I, and I am thou. My little wavelet has vanished in thee, I know thee alone is all existence. Thou alone art the ever-existent. Thou dost exist now, and thou shalt be evermore. Thou art impersonal, invisible, unseen, formless, omnipresent. But thou art personal through my love. Forever I want to worship thee as both personal and impersonal. By my devotion I have beheld thee sometimes as Krishna, sometimes as Christ. Personal, visible, and imprisoned in little forms, and hidden within the little temple of my love. O invisible One, as thou didst freeze part of thy unseen infinitude in the Arctic ice of finitude, so do thou appear unto me, visible and living, that I may serve thee always. I want to see thee as the ocean of all life, both with and without the ripples of creation. O creator of all things, I want to worship thee as everything. Yogananda used to say, Attitude on the spiritual path is everything. This reading today, the subtler teaching of the Martha and Mary story is it's all about attitude. It's not so much about what she was doing, because obviously she was doing a good thing. She was hosting a master in her house, having divine satsang with devotees, and was serving heroically in the kitchen to help these devotees. There's always people serving heroically in the kitchen. We have people right now back there serving heroically in the kitchen. Especially on Mother's Day today, I want to acknowledge all those mothers who are always serving heroically in the kitchen. But it's more than that. Jesus rebuked her not for what she was doing, but because she had forgotten something. She had forgotten that other part. Not only do we need to serve to get good karma, but we also need to put ourselves in some direction. We need to go toward the divine. We need to seek inner communion. We need to sit at the master's feet. We need to try to absorb that vibration, to have that devotion. And it was uh, interesting, last week at the end of Rajasi Day, many of you were there, this was a work day we had, and we had a little entertainment at the end of the, the day, and Naba and Kalidas and company put on a, a depiction of this story from from India, which illustrates this point and there's a two devotees Uh, one is a a sadhu an anchorite who's been practicing austerities for 80 years he's been sitting there doing his pranayamas and holding his arm up in the air and all these actions to find God and Narada comes down as an emissary of the Lord and and says uh, well I just wanted to let you know that uh, you know you're doing a great job and God will be coming soon and the anchorite says, oh, he better be coming. I'm, dude, I've been here for 80 years, and where is he anyway, and why am I waiting so long for him? And then Narda goes and sees another person there, who's this drunkard, who's sort of weaving around, and he's trying to put some fence posts in, and he goes, oh, Narda, yes, uh, God and I are just trying to stick these fence posts in the ground here, and isn't it wonderful? And Narda goes, well, the Lord will be coming soon, and so then he goes back to God and God sends him back again to test these ones to see which is the true devotee. And he says to the anchorite who's been practicing for 80 years, he says, uh, well, God will be here shortly, just as soon as he finishes passing millions of elephants through the eye of a needle. And the anchorite looks at him and said, passing elephants through the eye of a needle? What? That's it. I'm finished with God and all his crazy crowd. This is ridiculous. I'm going back to my worldly life. And Art is a little taken back by this. And, and he goes to the other, the one who he thought really wasn't a very good devotee, and he says, oh, the Lord will be here as soon as he finishes passing the elephants through the eye of the needle. And the devotee just goes into ecstasy, and he says, oh, he who can create the world, who is all-powerful, he'll be finished in an instant passing elephants through the eye of a needle, and he'll be with me in just a moment. And that is the attitude of the devotee. It's not what we do. It's what where our mind is while we're doing those things. So it's not... Just those practices it 's all the attitudes that we have, and this uh, in this reading, we're talking specifically today about attitudes, and attitudes are part of our consciousness, part of our consciousness, how we perceive, how we act, how we think in the world, how we interact with what comes our way that 's all our consciousness and what happens when we start out on this long soul 's evolution, or if you want to think about even in this life it 's It's like a newly graded, clean slope, and it's all just fresh and level. Prakash can appreciate this, I'm sure. (laughs) He runs our bulldozers. But then it starts raining, and little by little, the rain gets channeled into little rivulets, and then those rivulets collect more water, and those rivulets start to become channels, and then those channels start to erode deeper. So after some time, what do you have? When a raindrop, when some new perception, when some new thing comes to us, it finds a channel. It finds a groove. It finds a habit of consciousness. It knows where to go. And we react in one way, and we don't really think about what came to us. And so we have these attitudes, these habits and channels that we need to work with. And most of us here in this room have probably, I could say, are somewhere on the spiritual path. And if you think of the, our spiritual path as we're, we're piloting our airplane of self-realization, we're trying to get to the other side of the continent, to the ocean of bliss. And most of us are in the airplane, and some of us are still stuck on the runway, but most of us have taken off. And that take-off phase on the spiritual path, you're there, you've got the controls, and there's plenty of attention, and you know exactly what's doing and you're reading all the controls, and you're listening to the control tower, your guru telling you what to do, and you've taken off. Well, now a lot of us are up at 30,000 feet and we're just kind of cruising across the continent. And what happens when you get at 30,000 feet? Well, the pilots turn on autopilot. It's a wonderful invention that we have in this modern era era that lets the pilots sit back, it can eat, it can drink, go to sleep maybe, catch up on Facebook. You know, you never know. And all the while the plane is still going. Well, in airplanes, in modern aviation, it's good because people check who programs the autopilot. But on the spiritual path, we've got to be a little bit careful because who programmed our autopilot? Did it come from the Corporation for the Preservation of Ego Consciousness? <laughs> or did it come from the Cooperative of the Divine Masters of Self-Realization? Well, most of us got the Amazon.com Preservation of Ego Consciousness autopilots, And if we're not paying attention, that plane's flying at thirty thousand feet. But you know, while we're busy doing other things, it starts veering off, and next thing you know, we're crashing in the jungles of desires in Guatemala, (laughs) instead of getting across the continent. So we need to turn off autopilot, and turning off the autopilot is turning off those grooves, those habits of attitudes that we haven't really examined, that we don't really know where we come from. And these these attitudes can be uh, very powerful. The first thing is to bring them up to our inspection so we can see what's there, and then we'll talk about how to get rid of them. And last summer I had a uh, rather uh, daunting realization about some of my habit patterns and attitudes, and it had to do with worry. So Divine Mother, in her infinite wisdom, has put me in a position in the community where I get to deal with lots of details. I'm the village manager, and I try to coordinate lots of things and keep them going, and there's a great uh, tendency at times to worry about details, and so I'm working on that, and Divine Mother's helping me to remember God and get beyond all those worries, but it's become, it's a habit. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and sometimes I get a little overwhelmed with all these things, and so. Last summer, I decided I'd take a little break. I was going to go for a day of seclusion, go off backpacking at Grouse Ridge, which is a, it's an area near here, not too far away. And i was just going to go by myself and be out in nature and enjoy life. So this was in August, and usually the road up to Grouse Ridge opens in June. But uh, this year, last year, we had about 200% of usual snowfall. And so as I was driving up there, I was chanting, I was in bliss, I was just going to have a day of seclusion with Divine Mother, and I get up to the end of the road, right before the parking lot, and all of a sudden there's all these cars and trucks parked there, and I just kept going and kept chanting, And, and I said, I don't want to, you know, there's no place to turn around, I'm just going. So next thing you know, I'm driving in snow, and then next thing you know after that, I'm in a snowbank, and I just said, oh, I'm just going, and for all those of you who know my wonderful truck, it's not the, sort of the height of four-wheel drive excellence. It's a 27-year-old uh, Ford, uh, <laughs> Ford truck that's it's seen better days. But I just kept going because I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to turn around. So I actually made it all the way through, and I made it to the parking lot. And I realized, well, there's nobody else in the parking lot. But okay, I made it. I'm going to park here. So I got my backpack on, and I went off backpacking. And next thing you know, there's the little mine going you know, how are you going to get back through those snowbanks? You know, that was downhill that you were going. How are you going to get back uphill through the snowbanks? I said, oh, it's okay. We'll worry about that tomorrow. You know, we'll just keep going. No, we didn't worry about it tomorrow. We are just like, how are you going to get out? How are you going to get out? You're going to get stuck. You could be here forever. You're going to have to hitchhike out. You're going to have to miss work on Monday. You're going to have to come back and get your truck. Well, this went on and on and on. And I just said, no, I'm here for seclusion. I don't want to do this. So then I, you know, I tried to meditate. I tried to chant. And all this thing, you know, you're not going to get out. <laughs> I tried to go to sleep. I was dreaming about going through snowbanks. <laughs> I couldn't get out. And all of a sudden, the next morning, I said, OK, that's it. I'm going back. I'm done. So I hiked back to the truck. And I looked at the snowbanks. And they weren't quite as bad as my mind had made them. And I said, OK, well, let's. Just go for it. So I went for it and I made it out with no problem. But what happened? The worrying habit mind, those attitudes, just kept going in there and it ruined, it ruined my whole seclusion. <laughs> so it's powerful. Those things are powerful. You have to be aware of them. You have to get past those attitudes, those habits. And the Gita in this reading gives us a little bit of a, a hint of how we can help do that. So... Uh, Swami paired these two things up, and it says in the Gita reading, be not too elated during times of happiness, be not too sorrowful during times of pain, get rid of egoic desires, and you'll be free from anger and fear, and you'll attain discrimination. Well, there we are again, back to what we talk about most every Sunday service, desires. you got to get rid of the desires, because the desires are what's linked to these attitudes that, Take up all our bandwidth and don 't allow us to get to the right part of things that Mary was experiencing and i have there 's this I came across this image in the precepta lessons that Master put out there. These were some of his early lessons in uh, when he came to America, and he said uh, chitva chitva is that feeling nature that 's the part of us that creates these likes and dislikes, these wants, these desires. I want this i don 't want that, I like this i don 't like that." It's the part of the mind that really binds us. And we say the definition of yoga is to get beyond these little vortices, these traps of energy, these traps of feeling nature. So Yogananda gave us this beautiful image, or at least I love this. It's just so perfect. He says, Chitva is like a squeamish lady sitting in the mansion of our mind, characterizing as... Likeable or disagreeable, all the things that are channeled in from our five senses. So can't you just see that, you know, in the, in the mansion, in the foyer, there's this squeamish lady going, oh yes, come right in, come over here. <laughs> oh no, no, not that one. Ew! <laughs> well, that's, that's what's going on in our mind here. That's the squeamish lady that's right there going, I don't like this, I don't like that, I have to do this. <laughs> And that's what happens to us. And Master, Master, when he worked with his disciples, was very, very clear on likes and dislikes. He would pick up instantly if a devotee didn't, didn't like something. There was a story of a young monk at, uh, who was at Mount Washington, and he really didn't like watering, irrigating. You know, watering the lines, those hoses, they're all wet, and it's muddy, and you're dragging them around, and you're out there, and it's hot. And He just didn't like Watering. So what did Master do? Master transferred him to Lake Shrine, where his sole duty was watering all the plants in Lake Shrine. If you've been to Lake Shrine, it's a very beautiful landscaped area with a lot of plants to water, and maybe that was back before automatic irrigation systems, I don't know. But <coughs> So finally, this devotee embraced the job, and once he embraced it, he was immediately transferred to something else. So his master was trying to work with those likes and dislikes, the way we can get into this and in the way we can get out of that. So let's look um, a little bit more at those other two things that they talked about. There's our egoic desires in there, and they lead to what? They lead to anger and fear. And why did, he pick, why did the Gita pick on anger and fear? And what does that have to do with egoic desires anyway? I mean, yeah, sure, we have all some desires, but do we really, does that really get us into anger and fear? Well, a couple of passages later in the Gita, and uh, this is chapter two of the Gita, verses 62 and 63. There's one of my favorite verses in there and explains this whole connection. So it starts with attention to the objects of the senses. So think of that squeamish lady in the mansion of your mind there, just paying attention as they all come in. So if you're focused on material desires, that leads to attachment. To those material desires. That's where your mind, where you start going, that's the groove in your eroded slope. That's where all your attention goes. Once there's an attachment to those desires, what happens next? Cravings. A strong desire, a craving for certain things. And then once that craving and desire comes, it's inevitably not going to be fulfilled. And when that fulfillment doesn't come, anger comes in. Anger, the definition that Master gave for anger was unfulfilled, it results from unfulfilled desire. That emotion comes up. Once anger comes in, delusion comes. We lose, we start to lose focus. We get into delusion. We've learned, we've stopped learning and we stop remembering all those wonderful teachings we have. After delusion, we forget the true nature of ourself. I mean, we know at some place studying on the spiritual path, we know we're part of a higher self, we know where we're going. Once delusion sets in, you forget about the higher self. Once you've forgotten about the higher self, what happens? You lose discrimination. As it talks about in that Gita reading, when you, have, when you can get free of egoic desires, when you can be even-minded, you get discrimination. What's discrimination? Discrimination is the ability to choose what you want to do. Am I going to go for what's expansive, for what's higher? Will this action, will this thought lead me that way? or will it lead me the other way? That's the power of discrimination. We can look, we can analyze which way do we want to go. When you've got anger, delusion, forgetfulness of the self, you lose discrimination. What happens once you lose discrimination? Annihilation of the spiritual life. So there it is, it started with a focus on desires, went right through anger, the next thing you know, your spiritual life is annihilated. So it's important to pay attention to these things. And most of us, myself included, would say, especially those who live in a spiritual community or on a spiritual life, say, you know, I'm not an angry person. I don't, I don't give in to angry. And it's, it's very rare that you will walk around this village or most places and see somebody just throwing a tantrum and ranting and raving, unless maybe they're two or three years old. But most devotees, when we interact with each other, we don't express a lot of anger. We don't let those things get in there. But Anger is thwarted desire, and we have all—we all have desires—and they get thwarted sometimes by the nature of desire. So sometimes that anger gets in there, and it's again—it's taking up some of that bandwidth that could be used for devotion. But we're stirring around in anger in there. And again, I had a um, very interesting uh, experience this week about that, and I'll tell this one on myself again. We had. Um, I like our old phone system. <laughs> we, have our, we, have our own, we run our own phone system here and we have a, a voicemail system that we've had for a number of years and you can do all kinds of neat things like send messages and receive and forward them. And we had an old voicemail system that worked pretty well, but we decided to change to a new one and there were some very good reasons for changing to the new one but the, the new voicemail system came in and it wasn't quite the same and it didn't work quite the same and in my opinion it wasn't as well written as the old one and it gave us lots of things that we could do that we didn't really want to do but it's really hard to do the things that we did want to do and part of it's just my own inability to grasp it at first but You know, I got I got tired of like, you know, listening to this lady tell me to enter the country code and punching things and going into dead air and you know, I just it it was frustrating. And I had a desire to be able to communicate. And that desire was being thwarted. (laughs) (laughs) And so unbeknownst to me inside I was getting angry. And then our phone administrator, Rick, decided to have a class to help us poor people who couldn't grasp the new phone system to learn how to use it. So he came in and guess what happened? Boom, he got shot with my anger about the phone system. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't him. It was my anger was at the phone system, but guess what? It was in there and it was out there. And I started ranting and raving and talking like who programmed this thing? This is wrong. And he and fortunately, he was calm enough to just say, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> And he didn't, he didn't walk out of the room, fortunately, and we kept going with the class. And, and I took a step back, and he, he taught me a few neat things, like you know how I can bypass the three seconds of dead air after my password, and I was happy. <laughs> but it taught me a lesson. You know, I don't consider myself an angry person, but there was something going on in there. There was a little anger, which, unfortunately, he was the lightning rod for, and hopefully we're still friends. <laughs> But we made it past that one. <laughs> so anger, be careful of that one. It, it, can, it can eat up inside. You can eat up energy, those thwarted desires. As long as we're having desires and they're being thwarted, there's going to be a little bit of anger. So you need to keep giving that up. You need to get past that. Now let's look at the other one that I talk about in this reading, fear. So fear, that's another big one. It's another one that uses up a lot of bandwidth on our channels. And we don't necessarily think about it. And at the basic level, of course, the fear comes back to the fear of preservation of this body, the fear of preservation of life. It's one of the basic instincts, the first chakra that we're born with. And, I mean, there was a guy, uh, Ernest Becker, in the 70s wrote this book, uh, Denial of Death. I mean, he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. And his whole thesis was that our inability as a culture to deal with death and our anxiety around that and our failure to look at our own mortality led to all the problems we have in the society. So, I mean, that was a big one, fear of death. I mean, and even as yogis, we know that it's just like taking off a coat when we leave this body, we leave the coat behind, and we go on to the next one. But there's still an attachment there. And for us, it's actually a little more subtle. It gets out to farther attachments, not so much just the body, because we can rationalize that, although it's, it's difficult even for masters when they take that final step. But it gets more complicated, and that's, we get attached to our possessions as an extension of our this little egoic self. The, the soul attached to the body is the definition of the ego. Well, that, that ego also gets attached to possessions. And once you get attached to possessions, you get fearful that somebody's gonna take those possessions away. Then you can move out another level of delusion, you get attached to your reputation, and you're, a fear, you're fearful for what people are gonna think about you, how they're gonna to react to you, you're gonna look like a fool, you don't know what to do then you even could go farther, and you go out to to power and wanting to to control things. And if you can't control those and you don't have that power, you get fearful about that too. And Yogananda said that we really need to practice fearlessness and turn those things back inward, probably in the reverse order of that. So the first one out there is looking at success on the material world and, and fear of not succeeding or fear of not having power. And then you get back to your reputation. And then you get back to your possessions. And finally, you can give up that freedom to your, your, just be fearless in yourself. And Yogananda said, he said, you know, people, people recoil from the world because of this fear. They don't want to engage because they want to protect themselves from all those problems that are coming out there. The master said, forget it. When was the last time that you saw a world that was free from suffering, that was free from war, that was free from disease? You know, maybe 12,000 years ago in the highest yuga, but recently? Forget it. That's the way the world is. He said it's our religious duty to embrace every problem that's coming to us that demands a solution because it's been given to us by life for our own growth. It's our religious duty to embrace it. That's what those problems are there for. They're not there to... To recoil from and get the fear, it's because that's what helps us grow. They're coming to us and we have to embrace it. He said, Sighs and tears on the battlefield of life are the liquid cowardice of a weak mind. Say that out again. The sighs and tears on the battlefield of life, like, oh, I'm so, I can't do this. That's liquid cowardice on the battlefield battlefield of life in a weak mind. Liquid cowardice of weak mind. We have to practice that courage. That's the antidote to the fearlessness. You have to put it out there and be strong and say, whatever comes, I'm going to be happy. I know the world's a mess. It's okay. I'm going to be happy in it. doesn't mean don't do things, but embrace that. Let it come to you. I had an interesting... um, experience of this courage that i just wanted to acknowledge and marg and i recently returned from a trip to mexico and well no that wasn't the courage wasn't to go to the trip to mexico (laughs) (laughs) that took a little bit of courage but not very much what what impressed me is though is we went down to visit a devotee in a town called lacero cardenas a devotee named Medardo, and for four or five years Medardo has been running a meditation group there and he just you know, was instantly on fire for the spiritual path when he read the lessons of Ananda. And he's been trying to come to Ananda for, he's tried four different times to get a visa to come here, and he's been denied every time because young, unattached, male, educated Mexicans, they don't want to give him visas to come to the United States because they think they're going to stay here. So he's tried, he ended up going to India once, he met Swami, but he's been pretty much on his own down there. And Lázaro Cárdenas is not what you call a hotbed of New Age thought. It's, uh, <laughs> it's actually a steel, a steel mill town on the tropical coast of Mexico. It's fairly isolated. It's where a big river comes out, sort of the Sacramento River of the west coast of Mexico, and they built big power plants. And there's this huge steel mill that dominates the town. And most of the people in the town are somehow related to the steel mill, and they work three shifts a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, the steel mill just keeps going. And he's drawn people from that milieu and he's worked very hard to keep this meditation group going. Mostly he was working on his own. I mean, we'd visit him sometimes and Ashini would give him support, but it was, it was, he kept it going. Well, last year, he had a pretty difficult year. Those problems of the world sort of started focusing on him and he kept looking for solutions. He got robbed. He worked as an architect, and his his job as an architect and a contractor supported pretty much everything that was going on there. So first he got robbed once, and they took his computers and broke in. Then he got robbed again, and they took all his stuff and his truck. And then he had a crew that was renovating a house for a a woman. And one of his workers, opening up a wall during the renovation, found this box of jewelry that the woman had hidden in there. And it was worth somewhere around $100,000. And this worker decided, wow, and just took it and ran. And of course, the woman found out and blamed Medardo and sued him and said, I'm not going to pay. And what was left to his business, that was it, it was gone. And so he took a job, he was in debt. He took a job working with his brother, something to deal with a steel mill of outfitting people that came. And, And he worked six days a week. He's in debt. He's struggling, but We asked him, how is he doing? He said, well, I'm doing well. I'm much closer to Divine Mother than I was before. And not only that, his group is much stronger because he was no longer able to sort of carry everything and try to make things happen. And he attracted the people that he needed. And it's a very, very nice energy there. And it's a very strong group. And he says, I'm closer to God now. I have no money. I have no ability to do what I used to do, but I'm stronger. That is courage on the spiritual path. And lastly, I just wanted to talk about the last piece of choosing what is the needful, what is the right way. Because when we get all these little attitudes and, and habits of consciousness and vortices of likes and dislikes, they absorb our consciousness. And if we can become aware of them and start leaving them beside, start changing them, that's the first step. But there's another step. That other step is to bring in something higher, the devotion, that inner communion that Jesus was talking about with Mary, trying to bring in what is needful, the right part of it, to always aspire to something higher. Why? When we think about it, all those little petty things that's I, me, mine, the ego, that's the only thing that gives reality to the ego, to this close, this bondage, this delusion. It has no reality other than what our own consciousness gives it, our own Consciousness keeps it going. If we break out of that, we go, whoa, there's a big world out there. And you start aspiring to the infinite, no matter how imperfectly you can do that. You talk to God. You talk to the guru. You you ask for advice. You You ask God what you should do. You do it with God. And after you're finished, you give the results back to God. You're always aspiring out to something bigger, think about galaxies. Think about a hundred billion galaxies. You know, your little anger about the phone system gets pretty small when you're out there in a hundred billion galaxies. Think about the yugas. Think about the ages. Think about the infinitude, about the all-powerful nature of God. Dwell on that. Think about the poem Samadhi. Think about that expansion of consciousness. And the more we can start backfilling when we leave space, when we get rid of those wrong attitudes, when you start backfilling with those right attitudes, without what is needful, that devotion, that's what's going to get us to divine realization. We are that infinitude. Get rid of the bad attitudes, bad habits, we'll realize that infinitude.